0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm Faker Rothers, and welcome to The Guardian Women's Football Weekly Tapas versus Picky Bits, Siesta versus Power Naps, tiki Tacker versus a blooming, beautiful Millie Bright Long Ball flamenco versus i don't know cha-cha slide no it's spain versus england of course we're previewing the women's world cup final we'll discuss everything leading into sunday's massive game in sydney take your questions and that's today's guardian women's football weekly Women's Football Weekly is supported by Google Pixel, the only phone engineered by Google and proud partner of the England teams. Search Google Store to find out more. Hello, hello. What an incredible panel we have today. As always, Moyo Abiona, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very good. Very good. Very excited, as you can probably tell. I maybe need to tone it down. We've got a full pod to get through in another couple of days as well. Tim Stillman, how are you?
2: I'm good, thank you. I've had caffeine now. So, yeah, I'm not sure that's helping the nerves ahead of Sunday, but it might help for the pod.
1: You're a lot less giddy than me, as always. He's just calm, stable. You know, you're going to bring me down in terms of like a nice chilled out level by the end of the pod, Tim, I reckon. Uh, Right, this is what we're here for. Spain versus England. How are we feeling, everybody? 48 hours away from kickoff in Sydney. Spain and England going head to head in the Women's World Cup final at Stadium Australia. First of all, Moyo, can you even believe, actually, that we're,
3: sitting here previewing england in a world cup final honestly no but like it's huge and i'm so happy that we are i feel like before tournaments tournament start we was like oh yeah like england are going to do this england but there's a bit of doubt but we just don't want to say it but this time like they've actually reached what is the promised land um and i just hope they can get the job done oh me too tim it's, it's pretty epic isn't it in serena we trust
2: yeah, absolutely. I, I'm still not sure it's quite hit me yet. I think because the tournament's so far away from me geographically, whereas last year the Euros, like I was there the whole way through. And I'm just, I'm really pleased just because I've spoken to a lot of people during the tournament because of the kickoff times, been like, ah, haven't seen as much I liked. And I think for it to cut through in England, we really had to reach the final. But now, you know, we've got pubs opening early. I've got my phone's been red hot ever since that semi final, which is great. So, I still don't think it's quite hit me and I don't think it will maybe until the anthems on Sunday morning.
1: Oh, I think I'm going to have a tear when the anthem's come. I had a tear when Alessia Russo's goal went in. I said that on the last pod and, uh, yeah, it's going to be an emotional one for sure. Uh, Special guest today, let's speak to England legend Ellen White, shall we? Record goal scorer turned pundit extraordinaire out in Sydney to be part of the BBC's coverage of the final. How are you doing, Ellen? It's so good to see you. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited. Really well. Oh listen, you can do everything. You are multitasking out there because you've got your your young daughter with you, which is just incredible. I've I've taken my little boy out to Qatar, so I know how, how difficult that that can be. So, I
0: hope you're surviving. Well, she's amazing to be honest. Obviously, I've got my husband here as well and I'm still breastfeeding. So, um he's uh with me all the time at the moment, but it's just so lovely to obviously for her to come and for us to experience this as a family. Um, and the semi-final was just incredible to have both my husband and and her
1: watching the game with the atmosphere. It was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, I can imagine, especially, I don't want to take you back to 2019, but we we were all there, <laughs> as were you on the pitch. I mean, what, what a different semi-final to be a part of.
0: Oh, I know, yeah. That one still actually annoys me. That 2019 one. I still get still get really annoyed with with that USA game. But no, it was such an incredible experience to to be in the stadium. Obviously working with BBC, but to have my daughter and my husband there as well. We'd we'd kind of mention like how incredible it would be if we were to have like a baby or a child and and to to do something out in Sydney, experience it together as a family. So it was it was so it was it was really lovely and obviously. The fact that it was England, Australia, and England win and we were there to
1: witness them going through to the final is just it was just really special. How proud were you of the girls at the final whistle? And and actually just overall since you've retired? Oh, I'm so proud of them.
0: What they've done for the game has just been absolutely phenomenal, really. Inspiring so many people. And and this World Cup's just had so many roller coasters, hasn't it? So many shocks. And thankfully. England haven't had too many of those um obviously you know they've had some you know some difficult moments um but I feel like they've handled them really well their mentality their togetherness has really shone through and obviously we've got a world class um manager haven't we but those players are just so talented um so I'm really
1: I'm really proud of them reaching this world cup final No, it's pretty incredible. And you mentioned Serena Wiegmann there. Every time I go on air, I'm asked what Serena Wiegmann is like and why she's so successful. And I can tell people from my journalistic point of view in terms of the amount of times I've chatted with her off mic and on mic. But what's she like from a player's point of view?
0: I've only ever got great, amazing things to say about Serena. You know, I I said to her when I rung her up to, to say that I was retiring i wish i was younger <laughs> so i get to experience her being a manager and to be part of her team for longer i told her that she made all my dreams come true of of helping us to achieve the euros last summer um you know she's a great person she's a leader she's a winner she genuinely wants to get to know you on a personal level and i think you know she just brought in just a sense of like calmness and togetherness for this England team you know it, it's someone that we've always kind of needed and wanted and never quite got the right manager we've had some good managers obviously but we've never just been able to get over that mark have we so yeah she just completely like just that family like feel the culture a philosophy that we could all buy into and uh, yeah she's just a genuinely good person um and i think you know you've seen it in this world cup She's an unbelievable coach and tactician as well. Obviously, She's got staff as well that are a big impact and a big part of that as well. But the way she's changed that formation to complement those individuals has just been
1: phenomenal in this tournament. Yeah, it really has. I'm absolutely loving the Lauren Hemp, Alessia Russo relationship up top. What do you reckon? I
0: just think it really worked well for, for them too, but for the group as well. You know, we saw at the Euros, didn't we, that teams started to double up on Lauren Hemp, which meant we couldn't see the best of her. But her being in a two with with Alessia, it just complements her. She can float out wide. She can go into that number 10 role. And like you see for Alessia's goal against Australia, Lauren can pick up the ball and just drive with it. She's really threatening. And then she's just got the finesse to do that through ball into Alessia. But then Alessia really thrives in this role. I think having someone else up top with her means that she can come deep and pick up the ball and she can float out into those wide positions as well. And plus, they're in the position to score goals. And I've spoken from the start of the tournament, you know, I think Alessia was getting a little bit of heat because she hadn't scored for three games. I was like, it's three games? Like, Give her a a chance. Um, But she was doing really well she was in the right positions and I think you know she just needed a little bit more confidence and just one moment where she could just strike through the ball and just have a little bit of luck and then it's come to fruition for her and
1: she seems to be bang on form at the right time. I'm hogging you, so I'm going to bring in Moyo and Tim as well, but I've just got one more question on on Lauren James, which I'm sure you're going to be asked time and time again. It's a really tricky one for Serena Viegman, but obviously with Lauren James missing two games, it means she's now available for the final, but obviously we saw the last two games have, have worked really well in the end for for the lionesses what What do you do as a coach? Obviously, I'm not Serena, am I
0: um but I think you know she I think she'll maybe keep the same team that she has for the last two games. And I think, you know, if she needs... It's great for Serena. She's got all 23 players fit. And obviously now Lauren's back. That You know, she can potentially come on and make a big impact. But obviously... I've got a lot of respect for, for Ella and what she's done in this tournament. She hasn't kind of let her head go down or um, she hasn't been sulking. You know, she's obviously, you know, Serena's very good at communication at the same time, letting people know their role. Ella obviously started the tournament and then has kind of come on as a sub a few times. But that shot and that emotion she put in that strike and goal against Australia was like, I'm here and I want to be in that starting eleven and it just shows you know her as a professional athlete that you know she wasn't deflated by not starting a number of games and shows the togetherness of the group and and the and the need for for the all 23 players to reach a final
2: i think whoever was going to win this tournament from the outset was going to be a team that fixed an issue during the tournament and i really think england in finding that front two of hemp and alessia Like To me, that's really kind of lit the fire under England's tournament because for the last year we've seen England try to replace Ellen and I think they've had the quality of striker to do that. But obviously Alessia and Rachel Daly are very different. I think it's taken a little while for England to work that out. But the Hemp and Russo thing I think has freed both players because Alessia was looking isolated. She doesn't look isolated anymore. Lauren Hemp was looking isolated. She doesn't look isolated anymore. And actually, if you remember the USA game last year, Lauren Hemp played as a false nine, I believe, because Russo was injured. And so she's had that bit of practice, I think, taking up more central roles. And yeah, I, I think for England, that's that's been such a big thing. And I almost think, not that the other parts don't matter, but that has just really kind of supercharged England's tournament.
3: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, to be honest. I was going to say that I think when we were first talking about the World Cup, it felt as though we were all kind of like, Every team hasn't really gotten into their stride yet, which worked in England's favor, I think, because it meant that it was more of a level playing field than people were making seem. Obviously, we're here in England, so like we're feeling the noise about England, but I'm pretty sure that was the noise everywhere. Like, I feel like every country pretty much had their own noise in regards to their team, and it's been nice that we've been able to see England figure it out as the tournament has gone on. What I was going to ask though was like what everyone thinks about like defensively how England have been. Obviously missing Leah is huge. But I just want to know everyone's thoughts basically on how Jess Carter has stepped up hugely this tournament, especially being that she isn't a regular starter for England. Well she wasn't a regular starter for England before this.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think for Jess Carter, you know, she's played a number of games, hasn't she, as that left back for England, which, you know, is isn't her natural position, is it? So we will, I think, you know, Serena was still figuring out what her back line looked like, obviously without Leah playing. And then, obviously, she still didn't have a left back. And, and obviously, everyone was talking about, would it be Rachel Daly or would it be Alessia Russo? And obviously, she's got a lot of trust in, in Rachel Daly, which we saw at the Euros. So it was like she, she'd she kind of made a statement that Alessia was going to start as the nine. And then it was like, who who is going to fill that, that left back position? And obviously she tried something out against Haiti. It didn't quite work. But then it was like, who can we get on the pitch that would complement everyone? And obviously Jess has played in a three back for Chelsea, which which seemed to work well. So I think that three backs worked really well with Jess, Millie and Alex, where they all complement each other. And you've got a right foot, you've got a left foot, and then you've got Millie leading in that middle where she could step in and drive. And then you've obviously got a bit more of a freedom from obviously Lucy and Rach Daly as those wing backs, and then obviously the stability from Kira Walsh, so I think it has worked really well um I think obviously at times you know they've had up and down performances, haven't they you know Haiti with the counter attacking obviously China, we all thought, oh my God, everything's come together, we're going to win the World Cup, and then obviously Nigeria happened, and we we're going to penalties, so you know our hearts are you know we're all over the shop, but I feel like this When they played Australia, it was more of a complete performance, very disciplined, defensively sound, which is something that we're going to have to do against Spain. So I feel like they've really grown into this formation and she's got everyone on the pitch who are, you know, free flowing. Uh, They seem to be enjoying what they're doing. They seem to enjoy playing that formation and they seem to complement each player's attributes at the same
1: time. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you on that. My only thing as a striker, and obviously, you know, for England, we previously knew Rachel Daly as a left back, but she's a striker and she's (laughs) not just a striker. She's the WSL's top goal scorer this season. How difficult and actually how disciplined does she have to be? You know, it, it shows her versatility for sure. But I just want to kind of go inside a striker's mindset, if you like, because obviously you've all... As a striker, you have a killer instinct and and Rachel Daly most definitely has that. How difficult must it be for her to have to adjust her game completely? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously
0: she did play the whole of the Euros as a left back, even though she was playing Houston Dash as a nine. But then she did kind of at times play right back and and play further in defence because she was well aware that when she went to England, that she was going to be playing some form of position in the back line. But then going into this season, I think she wanted to stamp her authority of being a number nine. And then she's obviously up against Alessia Russo. But it just shows the type of person and human and versatility and discipline and fitness level that she has to kind of say, right, okay, I'm not going to be the number nine. You know, Serena's obviously had conversations, thought, who can I trust the most? Because she just couldn't figure out that left-back position, could we? We just didn't have anyone that really suited the way England played. Obviously, Alex like played there a little bit. Jess played there. We just couldn't figure out who was best suited. So I think it it just went back to who do I trust the most there that, that is fit, athletic, is good on the ball, is disciplined, will listen. And that's obviously when it came down to Rachel Daly, really. And it's like it's a real tough one because obviously you're losing someone that is like the top goal scorer for for the WSL. But then you do have like Alessia Russo there, you do have Lauren Hemp and it, it's such a tricky one. But you know, if we're to win the World Cup, again Serena's gonna be a bit of a mastermind, isn't she? To be like putting her back in that left back position and then everyone would be, you know, saying to Rachel Daly, like your country needs you type of thing, like <laughs> we're so proud of you to, to be yeah, uh, to kind of uh, put everything aside being a goal scorer and be like, right, I'm gonna be a left back.
1: She desperately wants a goal, though. You can see it on her face lurking around (laughs) in the box when she can. (laughs) Just one final one for you, Ellen, because obviously we know your history with England and we know you had to retire at the end of the Euros. Now you're watching the girls on the world stage like this. It feels like a kind of pinch me moment that they're into the final. It feels like you know, another step forward on this, on this incredible, I hate the word, but sorry, journey. How do you even begin to sum up what this means? You know, they could potentially go on and win it, but let's take it as they're in the final first and foremost.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what we achieved finally, you know, to win something in the Euros was incredible. And, you know, we had a group that when we came together kind of 10 months prior to the the Euros that I really felt like it was a really special group and I really wanted to achieve something for England with this group because it was so special we changed so many perceptions after that win and obviously winning does help to be able to change those perceptions but I feel like as an England team we've always said that we wanted to win things we wanted to create a winning habit and that's not easy to create but I believe that since winning the Euros, the experiences that the team's had both at club and country now, I feel like that habit is starting to change, that we are on this kind of consistency of being able to achieve big things internationally. And that's got to be down to, obviously, the the mentality of the players. But then, obviously, it's really special, this group you have, that they want to use their voice and they want to create change at the same time they want to create a legacy they want to thank everyone that's come before them as well um, so I feel like it is really special we have gone on a big journey um, and I think if they were to to go one step further and win a world cup I, I can't even imagine what it would do for women's football what it would do for for young boys and girls kind of looking at those role models what it would do for grassroots football in particular and also for, for me changing perceptions, diversifying, making football equal for everyone, equal opportunities. You know, the letter we sent to the government in particular, actually saying to the government, okay, are you actually going to do this now? So I think, you know, it's, it, it is an incredible journey and we are moving in the right direction. But these girls are, are really creating a lot of change in a good way. And that's why I'm probably proud of them more than anything,
1: that they're really using their voices in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So are we winning? We're winning, aren't we? Oh, yeah, 100%. I knew you were going to say it. (laughs) I've believed all the way, by the way. Even after Haiti, I said, we're doing it. It's fine. Don't panic. Ellen, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. Take care. I look forward to seeing you on BBC One, building up to the final from 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. England's all-time leading goalscorer Ellen White there. So onto the nuances of Sunday's game then. England have been through so many different challenges, different tactical setups, different approaches in their route to the final. Does that
3: stand us in good stead, Moyo? Yeah, I think England are now well rehearsed in terms of what they could meet. I think they've seen a lot of defensive coverages. I think they've seen a lot of different midfield setups as well. I think they've seen a good variation in terms of athletic teams and technical teams. Ellen was saying before that the Columbia game and the Australia game specifically felt like the most well-rounded performances that England have had in terms of the opposition being really high level and England being good on both ends of the floor, so both defensively and offensively. And it just felt as though they're starting to click. They're starting to understand, Okay, these are the tendencies of the players I'm playing with. And I guess it helps with the continuity they've had. So yeah, I think this is the most confident they should feel like going into a game. I feel like they're starting to really believe in not only the formation they're playing, but the players that are playing within that formation as well. And they also trust their bench. So, so yeah, it's been nice to see. Yeah, England haven't
1: had it all their own way, Tim, this tournament, but neither have Spain. I mean, we know England's route to the final, but just in case... People have forgotten 1-0 victory over Haiti, 1-0 victory over Denmark, then that 6-1 fun game against China, then goalless against Nigeria with a 4-2 win on penalties, the 2-1 victory over Colombia, followed by the 3-1 victory in the semi-final over Australia. Spain looked like they were cruising. Group game one, 3-0 win over Costa Rica, 5-0 win over Zambia, and then boom, 4-0 defeat to Japan then it was cruising again 5-1 win over switzerland netherlands took them all the way but they eventually won 2-1 on extra time and then it was a 2-1 victory over sweden as as well so they've kind of had different challenges to to face as well
2: yeah absolutely i think that's that's one of the really intriguing things about spain we saw at the euros last year where to be frank they played england off the park for 80 minutes As soon as England equalised, I was sat with my mum at that game. I was watching them after the England equaliser, trying to appeal for a foul. I said to my mum, they're gone. They are absolutely gone. And we saw them crumble. Whereas this time, Switzerland got them back to 1-1. Sweden pegged them back. Netherlands pegged them back. They went back to win all those games. They got their noses blooded against Japan and they kind of haven't let that affect them. So I think we can say that mentally... They're a different prospect to what they were last year, which is even more incredible given everything that's gone on around Spain. So for the team to develop that mental fortitude in that environment, honestly, I find it quite surprising.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. It's 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 a really interesting aspect going into this, uh, the mentality side of it. And when you also think that semi-final against Sweden that they had, Moyo, was really attritional. They found a way, though, to to kind of get through it England just looked calm and composed against Australia. And barring that Sam Kerr
3: worldie, looked reasonably comfortable. Can we read anything into the semi finals? Yeah, to be honest, the semi final games were interesting in different ways. I think that it was good for me to see Sweden play Spain because I've always thought that for Spain, their Achilles' heel has been teams that are physical. And so that was the matchup I actually wanted to see. I wanted to see them against a team that is known for physicality and see how they fail with it. The goal they conceded showed me that they still have frailties. It was a typical like goal that you'd expect Spain to concede. And that's even with all their players, let alone with not the defensive structure that they normally have. But yeah, the fact that they got through that, I was like, OK, they've really got the mentality there, as Tim was saying. England's semi-final was definitely an interesting one because... They were met with strange odds in the sense that the whole stadium pretty much was for Australia. Everyone outside the stadium was for Australia. So they had a lot of pressure going into the game. But it was interesting because the goal they conceded, obviously, was a worldie, but there were a couple other chances that Sam Kerr had. But then you have to think, mm, but it's Sam Kerr. Like, I know it's not good to just be like, listen, it is going to happen, though. I feel like when you're a world-class striker in the way that Sam Kerr is, you are going to get chances in the game. I think that's what makes her world-class. I think the fact that after Sam Kerr scored and then Lauren Hemp scored to make it 2-1, the fact that England were met with challenges there, because Sam Kerr almost scored an equaliser twice, and the fact that England were able to withstand that and then move on and push on and then get another goal just shows me, I think, that they're at the right place mentally to sort of go for adversity. Like, they've gone for a lot of adversity in this World Cup, but it just it reaffirmed this semi-final for me that England know how to, or they're equipped at least, to get through adversity. Let's take a closer look at some of the key matchups,
1: shall we? First of all, in the middle of the park, Bonmati, Pateas, Abiera, all coming up against Stanway, Walsh and Toon potentially. Who has the upper hand in the midfield,
2: Tim? I mean, I'd have to think Spain. Essentially, I think what this game comes down to is England can win it with their front two and the wing-backs as well, who I think are... Are uh, really pushing up well uh, and getting support in the box, but Spain can win it with their midfield. And while I think England are definitely going to stay with the same team, with Spain, they're slightly harder to read because they've done slightly different things. So against Netherlands, they didn't play Alexia, they played Jenny Hermoso in midfield, had Esther up front as a false nine, and she was really dragging Sherida Spitz away. They played Ona Barche at left back because Victoria Pelova was on the right. I don't think they'll do that here because Netherlands were were weak defensively on their right side. England have Jess Carter on the right side. That is not weak. That is one of the best pure defenders in the world. But then what they did against Sweden, they played Alexia in midfield and they put Jenny homozo up front. And I don't think they looked quite as good. I know... Given their success at club level, this sounds like a weird thing to say, but I don't think Spain look as good with Alexia and Bon Matti in the midfield. I think the year that Alexia's had out, Bon Matti's quite liked the Spain and Barcelona midfields being built around her. And so I, I think it will be really interesting to see what they do there. But clearly, whatever they do there, Spain are going to be fielding three or four world-class midfielders Barche as well, they really overload out wide very, very well. I'd be shocked if England had more of the ball than Spain and Spain will dominate it in those central areas. So for England, I think it's more about A, when you get the ball, don't give it away because you might not get it back for a few minutes and B, making sure that possession that Spain have is sterile and that they don't get those overloads going, those triangles going, that they've they've done really well in the knockouts.
1: I remember Serena Viegman saying at the Euros that England were going to have to get used to not having the ball and you could see that England were frustrated by that a year ago. I feel as if this England side have matured a lot with that. We did see some frustration over Spill against Nigeria because they you know, were just harried the, the whole time. This is obviously going to be a bit of a different challenge. But it could also be a bit of a battle of the young and upcoming superstars, Moyo, as well. We just don't know whether Salma Paraluelo or Lauren James are going to start for, for either side. But what we do know is that they've both absolutely, take the red card out of it, they have both absolutely lit up the tournament. What roles could
3: they likely play? Yeah, to be honest, they've both been incredible. And it's, it's nice to see, because when you go to a major tournament, especially as a young player, there's pressure, but there isn't. It's like a balanced amount of pressure because the expectation isn't necessarily on you to carry a team. But at the same time, that's probably your first opportunity on the world level to sort of show everyone what you're about. And I feel like, especially in like sports like football, often the first impression of someone at a major tournament is what sticks. But yeah, it's been it's been nice to see them. And they've played different roles. Obviously, before Lauren James got the red card, she was essentially in a starting role. Those last two games she had started, you know, she was feeling confident. Sam Parloelo has been coming off the bench the last two games, but... If anything, I think the fact she's been coming off the bench and making an impact just shows that she's staying active throughout the game. I think the ability to come off the bench and play well is is something that's very, like, it's not hyped up enough. I think sometimes when you're coming into a game and you're not sure of the temper of the game, it's hard to put your foot down. But it seems as though every time she comes on, she's making an impact. And I feel like that points towards her game intelligence. And it's just it's just a very exciting prospect that we're going to be seeing a lot of these players for the next few tournaments. And yeah a a game like this is how rivalries are built in my opinion like you want it to be like this young player versus this young player or this winger versus this fullback you want to have points to like draw comparison between but yeah they're both in amazing this tournament um so I'm excited to see what they do
2: yeah I I think this is really where the game could be won because I think both of them will be on the bench but they'll be the first off the bench if you know what I mean and I think Lauren James, I think she will start on the bench, particularly because we probably won't have a lot of the ball. And I think Ella Toon's probably better suited for that. But make no mistake, Lauren James is the first England player coming off the bench unless there's an injury somewhere else. And Paralueo as well, She's. I, I think she'll start on the bench. She's been such a good impact sub for Spain. And if you look at Spain, one of their issues, sometimes they lack that direct player up front because Spain are like Barcelona, but you look at Barcelona, they import their front three. None of them are Spanish. They have Oshuala, they have Caroline Graham-Hansen. Like They buy their direct players in and Spain have suffered with that. But Paralueo is exactly the type of player they've missed. She's got that directness and that's why she's been such an effective sub. And I really think that one of these two players could win this game.
1: And actually... You mentioned Barcelona quite heavily there. Lucy Bronze and Kira Walsh obviously play for Barcelona and are going to be able to hopefully impart some information to uh, Serena Wiegmann and um, Ian Vierink and the rest of the team, for sure. On that Lauren James point, Moyo, I mean, even if she comes on as a sub, how is she going to be mentally? What will they have done with her behind the scenes, do you think, to, to almost
3: make sure she doesn't try too hard and all the attention is going to be on her? It's going to be really tough. I think what England have done well for sure is the fact that as soon as this happened, Serena was very vocal both in the press conferences afterwards and in the interviews that came after that as well, that like they know this is not within her character and that they're not judging her based on that. So I feel like just having her included in everything, we've seen her still included in training, just still enjoying the same vibe that she was prior to the red card. And I think just making it seem normal. Obviously, we know it's a final and it's going to be, it's an even bigger game than all the ones that have happened before then. But I think there is a level for young players, especially, that you need to sort of play down and tone down experiences. And I think that's sort of like the experience that she's got within the team in terms of people like Alex Greenwood, Lucy Bronze. They'll very much be there to put an arm around her and just say, listen, that we've all had that. We've all had those moments. Still just play your game. And I guess Lauren James's playing style in general is one that always feels as though she's always playing her game. So I guess there is, a, there is an element that just feels like that will be natural to her. But yeah, I, I hope she doesn't overthink it, to be honest, because that's when she's not playing her best. I feel like when it's coming natural to her is when she's at her best. Just finally on this game, Tim, are there
1: any weaknesses
3: in this England
1: setup that Spain are going to have identified and, and will look to exploit?
2: Yeah, I think Nigeria did really well at trying to expose England in wide areas because bronze and Daly, like I said, they've been brilliant attacking wise, particularly when crosses come in on that back post. And we've been able to use Daly as almost like a third striker when the ball's on the other side. But this is where Spain are really strong. They get those little triangles going. So Alexia pulling off to the left. And then, you know, Bon Matty really likes attacking that right channel. I worry about England less on the right side of their defence because I just think Jess Carter's such a good shutdown defender. But it's not so much that I think England are weak on the left side of their defence, but that kind of Bon Matty-Bache partnership, I think that does worry me a little bit. Bon Matty's been getting in that channel quite a lot. And yeah, and I think just not getting frustrated in midfield. And I think we've seen a player like Georgia Stamway, we talk about, England are growing in experience a couple of years ago I'd worry about her in a game like this picking up a silly yellow card a silly red card haven't seen that at all from her in this tournament even in the Nigeria game so I think Spain they try to kind of almost tie you out mentally with the ball but I think that kind of the left side of the England defense getting in behind Rachel Daly getting Bon Matty in that area I think that's an area to watch, particularly with Ona Barche, who's had a brilliant tournament as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just one to note, by the way, England will be playing in their blue away kit. That is because of the same navy blue shorts in their home kit as Spain's. Um, Susie Rack messaged in a WhatsApp group God it's so stupid FIFA are so stupid to be fair I expected more F's in there than just the two from FIFA. <laughs> Away from the game some interesting news yesterday coming out of the USA well news we all expected probably but Vladko Andonovski has stepped down from his role as uh, head coach after their earliest ever exit from a World Cup. Cue the FA's chief executive Mark Bullingham stating that any approach that England manager Serena Vigman would be 100% rejected. He said, we've seen lots of rumours and she's a special talent. We know that from our side. She's contracted through until 2025. She's doing a great job. We're obviously huge supporters of her and hopefully she feels the same way. She's someone we'd like to have with us for a very long time. I mean, they daren't even go there,
3: Moyo, surely. I knew that they would try to be honest. Like, I think it was pretty much the one person that I knew they would attempt to go for, but it's just listen. You had your chance. If they wanted to get Serena Williams, they should have gotten Serena Williams after Netherlands. Like that should have been the plan, especially after Jill Ellis. Like you knew Jill Ellis was going. The setup was there to get her, but I feel like they weren't fully convinced at that moment. But the problem is now they're convinced, but it's too late. So yeah, the door isn't the door isn't open anymore. And by the way, you know if she wins
1: the world championship with England why would she want to go to the US they got knocked out of the last 16 we're way (laughs) above them All right, we'll get some official predictions at the end of the pod that's it for part one in part two we'll look at the wider legacy of this world cup and what impact it could have on the future of the women's game Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Now, we must direct you to a brilliant piece in the Guardian from our very own Susie Rack. It's titled Seismic Impact of Women's World Cup Could Be Even Greater Than Euro 2022. Let's expand upon some of the key themes, shall we? In terms of the World Cup fever that swept across Australia and New Zealand, they've embraced hosting duties brilliantly from what I hear. That first night at Eden Park and then all
3: 61 matches since. It's been really special, Moyo. Yeah, it's been huge, to be honest. I feel like the team has just been really backed, not only by, you know, like the actual FA, the federation, but in terms of the country as a whole. Um, We saw it with the Euros last year, that the support grows, obviously, as you're doing well. With the Euros, it was a win. So there are a lot of fans that have stayed over from that Euros win. But this is a whole different competition. I feel like when you're seeing your country on a world level, and then you're seeing that they're able to make it through to a final. I think it just reaffirms belief in the team. But yeah, it's been nice to see as well, yeah, that I've seen a lot of like companies or people I've spoken to say that their places of work have been like putting on showings or viewings of the games. Um, and it's nice because it's that sort of thing that grows the game in terms of reaching situations and environments that aren't football-centred. Yeah, it's been huge. Absolutely
1: massive. And actually, Susie points out... It feels absolutely night and day compared to France 2019. I should have asked what it felt like for a player actually for to Ellen earlier on because it feels like we've come such a long way, Tim.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's maybe a question around Australia because we saw such a big boom in attendances, in particular in the WSL off the back of the Euros. But most of those England players play in England. So, you know, I, I heard... North London Derby, they're reading the teams out in the WSL last season, Beth Mead, Leah Williamson. Those are the names that really, really got the loud cheers. And and obviously in Australia, most of those players play in Europe. So it'd be interesting to see how that translates. However, for the Matildas, I think it's really going to go into orbit. And if anything, actually, them kind of coming back, maybe, for those international games. And we know there are plenty of them in women's football. I imagine we'll see a big boom in kind of Matilda's attendances. But you're right, some um, countries really capitalise on it and some don't. I know Vivian Miedema um, has been talking this week about how she didn't feel that the Netherlands capitalised fully on Euro 2017, particularly for their domestic games. So it feels like hosting a tournament gives you a platform but then it's about what you do with that platform and France I think missed that opportunity England didn't and a lot of people at the FA and some of the clubs really deserve a lot of credit for that Um, so it'd be really interesting to see how Australia and New Zealand play this because New Zealand very rarely play at home and they don't have a Sam Kerr or someone like that to, to really give them that hook. So it'd be really interesting to see what both host countries do with this legacy.
1: Yeah, well, have a listen to this. Friend of the show, Sam Lewis, tweeted a Deakin University survey has estimated that 17.15 million people tuned in to hashtag OzEng cumulatively, across Channel 7, Optus Sport venues, live sites as well, which is approximately 64% of the entire Australian population. The biggest television event, not just in sport, but in history. And uh, Tim kind of touched on it there, Moyo, what what England did in the Euros and the way the tournament was approached. Do you think that that has actually paved the way for
3: what we've seen down under? Yeah, I think so in some respects. And I also think, that Australia as a country is quite a sporting nation. Like, yes, for women's football, a lot of them aren't playing their league football in Australia. But in terms of the country as a whole, they are quite a sporting nation. I do feel like they get behind their teams. But yeah, obviously seeing England and what they did following the tournament is definitely going to give Australia and New Zealand ideas in terms of how they can implement different things. Like, if they can organise more friendly games, for example just as a way to showcase the players, especially because they're not playing their domestic football in the country. It's a nice way to sort of stay connected between fans that have watched them this summer and making sure that they still get touch points throughout the year.
1: Yeah, there's been so many fairy tale stories as well, Tim. Colombia, Jamaica, South Africa, naming just a few. How important will, here we go with that word again, <laughs> the journeys of those teams uh, be to the global growth of the women's game?
2: Yeah, huge. And it it really throws a spotlight on the fact that a lot of those nations have done that in spite of their federations, not because of their federations. And that's important as well. And in fact, that's not just a fight that belongs, if you'll forgive the phrase, like at the middle tier of international football, because we know England and Canada are having some of those conversations as well with their own FAs. But yeah, it, it really should shine a light both on the lack of support but also on the fact that these nations really are emerging and that to me is really the story of this World Cup and it's quite it's not the story I expected because we came in looking at it and thinking there are six or seven teams that could win this but those six or seven favourites all seem to have an issue somewhere and actually almost on the quiet a lot of those kind of middle tier, emerging, whatever um word you want to use, nations, have come up and blooded some of the noses of some of those nations. So well, I say we, I was very focused on how are Germany going to sort out their issues? How are USA? How are Netherlands? How are England? And actually what's happened is Colombia, Nigeria, even Morocco getting through their group. I mean, who on earth gave them a chance? Jamaica. You know, what? what's really happened is those nations have come and said, OK, well, you're sorting stuff out. We can pick your pockets now, which I don't think we've ever really seen in women's football before. And again, how those individual nations build a legacy is going to be interesting. And a lot of this is about what these countries do in terms of their domestic product. And that's a question that belongs to Australia as well. What happens with your domestic product? Again, you go back to Canada 2015, Canada still doesn't have a professional women's league. They did not take advantage of hosting the 2015 World Cup. So what I really and what we in the media as well need to keep doing is keep looking at these countries and looking at what's happening so that it's not just the story every four years.
1: Yeah, and because there are still loads of challenges, aren't there? The battles for pay, rights, proper support, and they're going to go on and we cannot let the spotlight go down on this tournament and forget those hugely important causes. And we all have a role to play in that. Um, huh, I really wish Susie was here with us for this. Gianni Infantino has been up to some of his usual tricks. Speaking at the FIFA Women's Football Convention out in Sydney today, he said, Now is the time to treat women and men equally. I say to all the women, and you know I have four daughters. We know, Gianni, you, you 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 shoehorn it in every time. So I have a few at home that you have the power to change. Just do it. Push the doors. They are open. Keep dreaming. Let's go for full equality. As tweeted by journalist Tom Gary, Infantino also said to the women in the room, pick the right battles. You have the power to change. You have the power to convince us men what we have to do and what we don't have to do. Just do it. Any Nike sponsorships? With men, with FIFA, you'll find open doors. Just push the doors. You can always count on
3: him for an interesting soundbite or two. Moyo? It's just so naive of him to just say like, oh, the doors are open, just give him a push. Like, it's so naive to think that there isn't years and years of trying to push and break through doors that already exist. The fact that he's trying to make it seem as though it's an easy task or an easy feat, it's just blindingly naive. Like, it's so ridiculously naive. And him being on such a big platform and saying that sort of thing is almost disrespectful to the people that have been campaigning for years upon end, just to make a little bit of change. He's trying to make it seem as if you can make a lot of change with just like a conversation, if you choose your right battle, as he's saying. Yeah, it's just, it's poor. It's very, very poor from someone who's supposed to be the face of an organisation.
2: I only have one daughter, but I have four sisters. So obviously that (laughs) qualifies me to speak about this subject. But I mean, first of all, I think we all know that Infantino is an idiot. But like someone is proofreading, someone is writing those speeches for him. How is that getting through? But also, I think this is part of a much more cynical move that actually a lot of clubs take part in as well, where they're trying to make out that women's football is something that's only just started rather than something that's got like a century and more of struggle behind it. Now it's kind of, um, you know, at the elite level anyway, it's beginning to really kind of break through. A lot of people like Infantino are trying to pretend it's because it's only just started and it hasn't. And, you know, I, I know on The Guardian in particular, there's been lots of stuff about the history of the World Cup, about how it happened before FIFA got involved, how FIFA branded the 1991 World Cup. They refused to call it the World Cup in case it flopped. And it didn't. Tens of thousands of people attended those games in 1991. So this is not something that has only just started
1: and, and you have to look. I'm going to provide the balance, right? You have to say, I think his intentions come from the right place, and he wasn't part of FIFA when those decisions were made back then. So, speaking to people who who, who work closely with Gianni Infantino, they say he genuinely is coming from a place of wanting to help. I just think. It's just not sitting right and it's not feeling right and it's feeling forced and you know that's been fed back. so I've, I feel as if you know that needs to be taken on board in some way, but he will probably be thinking, well, what more can I do? Do you want my help or not? I, I don't know I don't want to don't want to put words in his mouth, but we'll try and put a little bit of balance in, but don't come up with speeches like that, I would say probably.
2: A new speech writer might be an idea. <laughs> yes.
1: Tim Stillman! Uh, Chelsea manager Emma Hayes was also part of a panel. Uh, Journalist Emma Sanders posted, she gave fascinating insight into how male coaches at Chelsea spend their first six weeks without contact with players to learn about the female body and remove their own biases from the men's game. I mean, I wonder how long Gianni would need for, uh, for that. Anyway, I digress. Final predictions, please, panel. We'll ease into it with Saturday's third place playoff between Sweden and Australia, which gets underway 9am UK time. Quick word on that, Tim, what do you think?
2: I do think Australia will win this. I I think they'll take it a bit more seriously with the home crowd and Sweden have just been in this position so many times. I can't imagine they're terrifically motivated by it. I might be wrong about that. I really hope Australia go for it because if you remember 2015, England wanted that bronze medal against Germany and Germany kind of didn't, but England went for it. And I really think that built a platform for them. So if I were Australia, I'd go all out for this and I think they'll beat Sweden.
1: Yeah, bronze medalists at a World Cup would be quite incredible, wouldn't it? Absolutely amazing. Right, the big one, Moyo. Which way is it going
3: on Sunday? England are going to win, I think and hope. Um, I genuinely do think England are going to win. I think the setup has been such that this is the best time for England to win the World Cup, I think. And they've got the talent to do it. I think they'll get the job done. I think they've been in this situation before now with the um, Euros final and then obviously getting to the semi final at the last World Cup. And I just think that this is the time to take the final step.
2: I think they'll do it. Tim? England after extra time. That's what I'm going for.
1: That's what I said too. I said 2-1. It's going to be exactly the same and it's going to put us through exactly the same stress that that quarterfinal (laughs) at the Amex did at the Euros and England are going to win it 2-1. One person who's going to be there on Sunday is David Dickin. He sent us this wonderful message via women's football weekly at theguardian.com. Hi Faye, Susie and the team. Just thought I'd drop you an email from an expat Englishman over here in Oz. Bit of a long-winded one and I'll try to summarise my love for women's football and my disdain for its detractors goes back a long way. In 2001 my daughter Jodie aged nine decided she wanted to play football. She went to play for a boys team. She was ridiculed on the sidelines by parents of opposing teams. She was decent and one of the best players in the team so proved them very wrong as she went on to play women's football. In 2005 before I moved to Australia we went to watch the Lionesses play Scotland at Prenton Park. Couldn't have been more than 2,000 people there. When we got to Australia we had somewhere for her to play football before we found a house to live in. She carried on playing and played representative football for the Gold Coast. She's now 30 with a son and another one on the way. I couldn't be a prouder dad or granddad. We've shared love of all things football sadly also Everton FC Marva can relate Uh, but on Sunday we'll share something we never thought we would experience when we go to the World Cup final together in Sydney with 80,000 people. Come on Lionesses thanks for the pod as my trips up the one to Brisbane on my daily commute are made so much easier. David Dickin. Thank you for that message, David. That's given me goosebumps and I hope you have the absolute best day. Bring it on Lionesses. Moyo, take care. Enjoy Sunday.
3: Thank you very much. You too. Tim, take care. Can't wait.
2: Yeah, you too. Fingers crossed. And uh, try not to let the nerves attack you too early.
1: I feel nervous already. Oh, my God. It's only Friday. No, it's not even. Is it Friday? Is it Friday? It's Friday. It's Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness me. I feel sick already. Uh, We'll see you on Sunday. Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. Women's Football Weekly is supported by Google Pixel. With its incredible camera and AI-powered technology, Google Pixel is bringing fans closer to the game this summer. Search Google Store to find out more.
0: This is The Guardian.